0: Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series.
1: We are unpacking over the next three weeks, this is the first of three, unpacking the vision that we shared last Sunday. So if you were not able to be with us last Sunday, I know a number of you were uh, still on holiday. and Welcome back, by the way. Happy New Year to you. It's good to have you back with us. Uh, but the, the message from last week is online, and I think the PowerPoint we shared is also available if you want to see what we were looking at last week. Um, we were thinking about the vision of the church, and we were saying that the vision, in a sense, hasn't changed in 170 odd years, in that God has placed DNA in this town, and He has birthed a church in this town because of what he wants to happen in and through this town. Our calling, the language has sort of changed over the years, but the, the, the vision has not changed. Our calling is to share the love of Jesus with the people of Fleet, to make disciples, and to resource the wide of church. That's who we are. And so that's our calling. There's three bullet points to that, which we're going to be unpacking. The first one this week, the second one next week, and the third one the week after. So that takes us to the end of January. So the first one is this, to be a church which honors, welcomes and actively pursues the presence of God. So that's what we're thinking about this morning. Uh, We'll be thinking about developing a culture of radical discipleship where living like Jesus is normal next week. And the following week, we'll be thinking about being a center of excellence as a resource to the wider body of Christ, locally, regionally, and globally. So that's where we're going over the next uh, couple of weeks. What we did last week was we gave everybody the opportunity uh, to say, is this my spiritual home? If you're 16 years of age or older, and you're saying, yep, this is my spiritual home, and for 2020, I want to express my commitment to this church, and I want the church to express its commitment to me, then you are invited to covenant in relationship to the church. This is the church, by the way. It's not a building. It's a relationship to one another, and we're saying, actually, yep, I want to express that. If you were previously a member, you still need to redo that. Because we don't want to say, well, actually, I signed something in 1912. And, you know, I'm still here. Hallelujah, if you are. Who are you? (laughs) Let's celebrate you. But (laughs) we want to be taking our relationship with God and with one another very seriously. And so each year, every January, we're going to have the opportunity to say, actually, do you know what? The Lord's calling me on somewhere else. We bless you. We bless you. There is only one church. It's called the Church of Jesus. And that's why next week's unity service is so important. And I'd love all of you, please, to be there. Because we want to stand together and say there's one church. But in terms of where we call to find the expression of that, yeah, if you say, yeah, this is where God's calling me to be, then, then re covenant uh, to the church and to one another. If you're part of my church suite, you can do that electronically. If you'd like to do that via one of the covenant cards that we gave out last week, there are covenant cards in the foyer that you can take and either take them home and fill them in, or better still, be radical. Fill it in and leave it here so you don't forget. And uh, we can take those from you this morning. So this morning, a church which honors, welcomes, and actively pursues the presence of God. That's what we're thinking about. I have a couple of scriptures that I just want to start off with by way of introduction. Exodus chapter 33. This is Moses in conversation with God. Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people if you do not go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all of the other people on the face of the earth? That is a great question. Now, you see, so often we are led to believe that the world is just absolutely filled with bad people. Every time I look at the news on the television, every time I've given up reading newspapers, but I sometimes read their headlines online, every time I look at the newspaper headlines, you can get depressed from that stuff. Now, I know they say that good news doesn't sell, but actually it just seems to paint a picture of a bad world. And I want to suggest to you that that picture of a bad world is also regarded within church. We look at the world and think, oh gosh, they're all terrible. But my Bible tells me that we are made in the image of God. And my God is good. Amen? Amen. And three of you agree with me. I'm thinking about an India trip, so you need to help me get ready for that. My God is good. Amen. Amen. (laughs) When God created, if we read the creation narratives, everything he made, he said, it is good. Until he got to creating humankind. And then he said, it's very good. Because we're made in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, no matter how long or short a life, they are made in the image of God. Amen? That means they're inherently good. That means theologically there's no such thing as a bad person. It just isn't possible. There's a thing called the fall that means that as a result of sin in the world and influences that are brought to bear upon every single one of us, even Jesus was tempted by the devil, the evil forces that are at work in this world means that every person who's ever walked the planet has the ability to do bad stuff. There's only one who never did, and his name was Jesus. So good people have the ability to do bad things. That's the reality of the world that we live in. So you see, if we think about our neighborhood, think about where you live. You are surrounded by good people. And so often we have this view that, oh, well, of course, we know Jesus, so we're the good ones. (laughs) We should be. (laughs) But actually, so are they. Let's get rid of this nonsensical them and us mentality. I need to tell you that some of the not-yet-Christians in the world do far more good than some of the Christians in the world. Some of what is done in the name of Jesus is not in the name of Jesus. I was watching a a video that I just came up on my Facebook um, feed or whatever it's called the other day. And it was about random acts of kindness. And it, it gave no reference to Christianity whatsoever. As far as I know, the people in the videos were were not professing faith. They certainly weren't actively saying it. And the first video that I watched was of a a row of people in a supermarket checkout line. And there was about four people in the checkout. And they'd got baskets overflowing with stuff. They even got stuff on the conveyor belt ready to go through the checkout. This young man walks up to the front of the queue, pushes in, with his basket, and starts to hand his things to the cashier, who starts to put them through the scanner. What would you do? It's interesting watching in the video. Everybody else in the queue, they they turn around and start to talk to each other. They've never spoken to each other in their lives. Suddenly, there is an injustice, and they start to talk to one another. Funny how you can suddenly find friends, isn't it? Well, the, the person behind it happens to be quite a big, burly chap. Decides he's going to tackle tackle this young man. There's a queue here, and you've just bypassed it. And the young man says, yeah, I'm sorry, I needed to do that because I'm paying for all of your shopping. With which he hands money to the cashier, pays for his and everybody else's shopping, and says to the cashier, I think there's enough for everybody there, you can keep the change. You weren't expecting that, were you? There was a feed then that just sort of went from video to video to video as these things tend to do, of similar stories. The world is filled with good people. We just don't see it. We don't celebrate the good. We like stories that sensationalize. Yeah. How often do you sort of say, oh, I've got some news for you. So-and-so down the road has done something good. How often do parents say to their children, I caught you doing something good. We we don't celebrate the good. Good news doesn't sell. Moses, he understood that everybody is made in the image of God. And so he was in the presence of God. He was in a place of praying. He was talking with God. He was having a chat with God. This is just normal conversation with God for him. And he says, Lord, I know you're wanting us to do what you've told us to do. You've told us where to go next. You've said what the vision is, what the next step is. But here's my request, Lord. I don't want to move from where we are right now unless you promise me, Lord. This is how he's talking. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he's saying. Unless you promise that your presence will go with us, Because the world you created is full of people that are made in your image. The world is filled with amazing people who do great things. All of us have the propensity to sin, but the world is filled with people made in your image. What's going to make us look anything different from everybody else? Unless you go with us. It is not the things we do. Because you have to go a very, very long way to do things better than some of the really good people in the world. That's why you can't earn your salvation by good works. It's nothing to do with what you do. It's who you are and what you carry and who you belong to and who you worship and who you serve. So the Lord hears his heart. And he says, yeah, I'll go with you. I will go with you. What Moses didn't realize was there was a cost. His motive was right. He wanted to carry the presence of God. He had no idea what he was asking. Exodus 34, the very next chapter. He's being in the presence of God, chatting with his God face to face. And he comes down, verse 29 says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. He didn't know. He'd just been with God. So he was not thinking, great, if I go and spend time with God, Then when I come back, everyone will look at me and say, wow, look at you, you're amazing. He only wanted to be with God. He wasn't interested in what people thought of him. He was not doing the good religious stuff so that people would look at him and give him praise. He was not an attention seeker. Or was he? Because, you know, I actually believe we're created to be attention seekers. God created us to seek his attention. He is a relational being and he created us to be objects of his love. And he wants us to seek his attention. The problem is we seek attention in all the wrong places. And he says, if you seek attention from me, you will have such peace, you won't know what to do with it. If you seek attention from me, you will have affirmation, you'll know your identity, you will be empowered, you will be anointed, you will be like God. And I believe there's two things that we should know. Firstly, we are supposed to desire the abiding presence of God to show who we belong to. That was Moses' desire. And secondly, the presence on you should be noticeable. So what does it look like? Well, Moses discovered that his desire for the presence of God, the real tangible presence of God actually was costly because he spent time with his God and when he went back into normal life, people avoided him. They took one look at him and they wanted to cover it up. They said, basically, don't come near us with that stuff. You go in the presence. We love the fact that while you're in the presence, you hear from God. We want to hear from God, but don't come near us. You go spend time in the presence, you make the sacrifice, then come back, tell us what God says, but don't get too close. People avoided him, because he looks stupid. If your face starts to shine, like real proper radiant, it's unusual, and people don't like different, so they cover it up, don't get too close. There's a cost. That's what he discovered. The disciples, after Jesus had been crucified, died and rose again. They were waiting for the promise of Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two. He showed up. They discovered a cost. They got ridiculed mercilessly. It wasn't even lunchtime yet, and they were being accused of being drunk. Because when the presence came upon them, the way they were behaving made it look like they were drunk. That's why people thought they were drunk. There's a logic to scripture. And so their actions, their behavior looked strange. They were shaking. They were laughing. They were calling out in words that people didn't understand. And people ridiculed you want the presence of God, I promise you this. People will talk about you and people will ridicule you and people will ostracise you and people will say, do not come near me. Those people, by the way, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you read Acts chapter 2, you'll find that everybody else was looking on saying, wow, suddenly we're hearing the wonders of God being conveyed to us in ways we understood. It is only the church that says, dumb it down. Those who are seeking say, dial it up. Show me that your God is real. Let me see the power. Same thing happened in Acts chapter 10, the Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Spirit moves in power again, this time not just amongst the Jews. People got ridiculed. What does it look like? As a cost. Are you prepared to pay for it? Read Acts chapter 7 if you want to find out about cost. Stephen with his face shining, radiant with the glory of God as they killed him for his faith. It's cost. What price are you willing to pay? But I've got some really good news. Don't we love good news? You're not too sure because you think it's a trick question. (laughs) You know me too well. Here's a truth that I believe with all of my heart. The majority of Christians don't ever in this lifetime truly experience the manifest presence. The cost is too high. It is perfectly possible to know and love Jesus, to live all of your life serving him faithfully. Perfectly possible. At the end of your life, be welcomed home with those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet never in this life experience the manifest glory of God. But I need to tell you, The manifest presence of God is our eternal destiny. It's what Jesus died to make available to us. In in the Old Testament, it was an experience that a few individuals had. The new covenant, not the new FBC one. (laughs) The new covenant is an invitation that Jesus made available for everybody to do what? To enter the most holy place. The most holy presence of God. We know that in the old dispensation, in the old covenant, the old testament, pre-Jesus, whatever language is most helpful for you, we know that there was a place, a physical place called the temple and it had different courts so that you could approach God as closely as you felt safe or willing or ready to do. And there was a place called the holy place, which only those who were set apart as priests could go into. And even within that, there was a place which was holding, hosting, housing the presence of God himself. And the presence of God in the holy of Holies, the most holy place, was so holy that only one person could go in. And even then, only once a year. And that place was so holy that when the priest, the high priest went into the most holy place he had to have a rope tied around his ankle and the end of the rope was outside so that if he died because the presence of God was so holy he could be pulled out without someone else going in and risking death. That's how holy the presence of God is. And when Jesus died the veil the curtain, and please don't think of curtains like these ones here. You know, even I, feeble and weak as I am, could rip one of those things down. I'm thinking more something like the weight of the Bayer Tapestry, you know? Substantial. A substantial barrier between where we stand and the presence of God. When Jesus died, that was ripped from top to bottom. Denoting it's from God, heaven downwards, ripping it apart. Open access. The invitation is to go in to that most holy place, the place that God Himself had said, No one can see my face and live. Let that just settle. God Himself said, No one can see my face and live. He said, Why didn't you come into that place? That's all by way of introduction. I'd love to read from Isaiah chapter 6. In light of everything I've just said, Isaiah the prophet understood the weight of the glory of God. He would have known the words of Moses, the words of the Lord spoke to Moses. No one can stand in my presence and see my face and live. And Isaiah has an encounter. This is his commissioning. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Listen to the language of this. I saw the Lord. Just get the awe of that moment. Seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe Filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. These are the angels whose commission is to worship the Lord day and night. He saw the seraphim. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. Why? Because no one can be in the presence of God, see him and live. So they covered their faces. Because of the holiness of our God. With two, they covered their feet. Why? Because where you walk, you pick stuff up through life. And we can't take that stuff into the presence of God. It needs to be covered. And for us, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another. They were encouraging one another in worship, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Please notice they did not say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. One day the earth will be filled with his glory. They said, it is. Do you see the glory of God in all that is around? Oh, that we would have our eyes opened to see the glory of God that is already in this earth. At the sounds of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Just imagine, if you will, that we're here in worship and this place starts to shake. Just imagine that. What would our reaction be? Obviously, we're thinking about Isaiah chapter 6. So we'd fall on our faces and say, glory, Lord. I don't know whether we would. (laughs) Who's the fastest runner? (laughs) We might find out if the place starts to shake. (laughs) And it didn't just shake. See, I've been in a building that started to shake. Some of you will have been in earthquakes. Who's been in an earthquake? Yeah, a few. It's a strange experience. So, if the place started to shake, we might say, well, what an unusual geographical thing that's happening at the moment. I was not aware that All Saints School was built on tectonic plates, and they are shifting in our very presence. But that place was also filled with smoke. The alarms would go off. We'd all go and gather on the black back playground. Except for the one thing. God was in the midst of it. And his presence was so real that there wasn't a case of, oh gosh, I wonder what's happening here. This is this is unusual. The place is shaking it must be an earthquake. There's smoke it there must be a fire. There was awe. Because the seraphim he'd seen them. He'd seen them. He was aware of what was happening. All of this before he saw the Lord. He was caught up in the worship of the angels. He heard the angel's song. The glory of God began to come into that place so powerfully, so tangibly, so real that the place shook and was filled with smoke. He hadn't seen God yet. And his reaction is thus. Woe to me. He hasn't even seen God yet. Woe to me. I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. No, they haven't. Not yet. You've seen the seraphs. You've felt his presence. But he knows what the Lord said to Moses, that no one can see my face and live. No wonder he said, I'm done for. This is going to kill me. Smith Wigglesworth, great preacher, evangelist, healing ministry. A man who was hungry for the presence of God. He would never enter a church to stand up and preach until he was so aware of the presence of God that he could barely stand up under the weight of the glory. And there are many, many testimonies that you can read where he would go to a town. He would bring all of the churches together because he understood unity commands a blessing. Have we mentioned there's a unity service next Sunday? (laughs) Four o'clock, church on the Heath? He would gather them together and before the meeting began, he got the pastors of all of the churches in a room together and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and the glory fell and one by one they fell. And one by one they crawled out of the room And every single one of them who'd been in one of those prayer meetings with Smith Wigglesworth said as they came out, I had to leave the room because I knew if I stayed in there any longer, I would die. Because the crushing weight of the presence of God was so much. And they said, but he's just standing up. He's just standing there. I thought I was going to die and he's just standing there. How does he do that? Because the more of the presence of God you experience, the more of it you're able to carry. The more of it you carry, the more of it you crave. The more of it you crave, the more you'll experience. And the more you will go back for more. And so Isaiah was able to say, I'm done for. It's going to kill me. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Notice it's not until he is worshipped, it's not until he has confessed his sinful state. It's not until he's got to a place of recognizing that actually he needs to die in order that through God he might truly live. It's not until he gets to that place that then God speaks to him. And I believe it was a face-to-face encounter. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. I'll go anywhere, Lord, I'll do anything. I've seen you and you've spared me. You've cleansed me. You've burnt my sin with the fire from your altar. You've consumed everything in me that dishonors you. I'll do anything. I'll pay the price because you have paid the price for me. That's his reaction. This is eight centuries before Jesus. And Isaiah is visiting the temple in Jerusalem. He's gone to see God. Let me just explain something to you about that. As I came to church this morning, I drove here. This morning, I intended to walk to church. thought it would do me good, get a bit of exercise i was late to church this morning. But I was late leaving. So I drove. And I saw some people who were coming to church. Some to this church, some to other churches, I recognized if I'd have stopped by any of those people who are walking towards church, said, good morning, what are you doing? They would have said to me, I'm going to church. And by that, they wouldn't mean the building. They would mean I'm going to be part of the body of Christ. I'm going to worship the one who created the universe. I'm going to seek his presence with the rest of the body. I'm going to be there with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to express my love to them. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to expect healings and miracles and signs and wonders. I'm going to feed upon the word of God together with the body of Christ. I'm going to be equipped, anointed and prepared and equipped to go out this week to work. I think that may have had caffeine in. That's what they mean. That's what we mean, isn't it? We say, I'm going to church. But it means so much more than that phrase. Eight centuries before Christ, you wouldn't have said, I'm going to church. You'd say, I'm going to see God. It meant the same thing. It meant, I'm going to the place of worship where God resides. That's the language that would have been used. I'm going to see God. But I want to suggest to you that Isaiah, on that particular occasion that we're reading about in Isaiah chapter 6, was going to see God with no expectation that he would see God. Why else was he so taken by surprise at what happened in the presence? It had become so much part of his routine to go see God that he never expected to see God. I pray that if we have fallen into that same trap, that God will shake us to the core. Because it is so easy to go through the motions, to enjoy singing the songs, and they're great songs, and we're blessed with musicians. To enjoy the company of the saints, and the saints are beautiful people. To pray. It's so good to pray. To feed upon the word together. It's imperative that we do that. To drink coffee. That's an added bonus. (laughs) But to do all of that with no expectation that we will actually have an encounter with God. Encounters with God should be transformative, they should be commissioning, and they should be empowering. That was what Isaiah experienced in the chapter we've been looking at together. They were transformative because there in the presence, he was forgiven. He came in profoundly aware of his sinful state. That's why he was so filled with fear. Church, we need to re-grasp the fear of the Lord. Why is it that every single revival in church history has been preceded by a season of repentance? Every single one. It's because when God starts to move and there becomes a fresh beginning of an awareness of God at a new depth and a new level, that is accompanied by a realization of our sinfulness. You cannot see the holiness of God without recognizing your own sinfulness. And while you're still trying to remove the speck from someone else's eye, while there's a plank in yours, you won't see your own sinfulness. But when God begins to move, suddenly we stop looking at one another, we start to focus upon him, and what he does is he holds up a divine mirror and says, let me show you what I see. It's called conviction. And true conviction. Conviction leads to true repentance. And true repentance leads to dealing with sin. Not covering it up. Not saying, actually, it's only a little sin. It's okay. But it leads to a place of true repentance where we get on our faces before God and say, God, have mercy on me, because if you don't, I'm going to die in your presence. Desire in that place was convicted but cleansed. Hallelujah. God never just convicts without offering redemption and cleansing and renewal and healing and liberation and freedom and a new start. Anything short of that is called condemnation. That's what the church does. It's not what God does. Encounters with God should be. Be transformative. They should be commissioning. When we encounter God, we then become the ones who say, I don't care where, I don't care what, I don't care when, but I will do whatever you want me to do, Lord. Here am I, send me. And they should be empowering fire heats things up. It raises our spiritual temperature. And when God calls, he equips and he anoints. And what we've done is we've set ourselves a challenge. In 2020, we've said our aim is to be a church which honours, welcomes, and actively pursues the presence of God. I need to ask you a question, in the light of everything I've said, do you really want that? Amen. Bless you, Neil. And I want you to think about it genuinely, very seriously. Think about it very seriously, because God takes it very seriously. And it is perfectly possible to live out the rest of your Christian life as an active disciple who will hear the words of the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of your life. It is perfectly possible to do that without actively seeking the presence. But Moses said, Do not send us out from this place. Do not send us up from here unless the promise of your presence goes with us because what else will separate us from the rest of the world? How else will people know that we belong to you? What will happen is people will say, you're a great person. You will get the glory. That's what will happen. You do good things and you get the glory. William Carey known by theologians as the father of modern missions, on his deathbed said, speak not of Dr. Carey. Speak only of Dr. Carey's Lord. I want to live a life where I am so consumed by the presence of God that when people look at me, they don't even see me. They look and say, I don't know who that is, but they've been in the presence of God. There's very few people that really, really want to live like that. But I tell you, the number of them is increasing rapidly in these days. As God is issuing a call to the worldwide body of Christ saying, who is hungry for my presence in these last days? We're seeing people like Heidi Baker who said yes to that. And she was in the presence for several days. Had to be carried in and out of meetings because she couldn't walk. And she was so transformed by that presence of God that she has literally never been the same since. And probably all of you know some of the stories about her ministry, how God has used her. And I've got some incredible news for you. There's nothing different about Heidi from you and me. She just said yes. So we want to be a church which honors, welcomes, and actively pursues the presence of God. And I've got some really, really exciting news for you. (coughs) Sue is going to come and tell us how. (laughs) We are so blessed to have Sue as our worship pastor. We're so blessed by the musicians, the technicians, the sound people, all of the people that help us with our musical expression of worship. We're so blessed. And, And Sue oversees that. And as we're thinking about 2020... Sue's just going to come and share one or two thoughts before we draw to a close. So, uh, Sue, can I invite you up? Let's welcome Sue, Sean.
0: Thank you. Yeah, four easy steps. (laughs) No, sorry. Um, A few things I was thinking as I was listening to Chris this morning. The first thing was the, the whole phrase, presence of God, because it can sound very out there somewhere, very ethereal, very untouchable, but. I don't know if you've ever had a list of, of people that you really want to meet. I know I've got a list of people that I'd like to meet. And, and I remember when, when people actually say, I've actually met that person. You think, what was it like? And they say, well, what was so good was just to be in their very presence and to soak it in. And as I was listening to Chris, I'm thinking, that's what it's about. It's just about being in the very presence of God and soaking it in. And it, it may be a bit like when you have someone visit your house and you invite them in and they come into the, the porch, if you have a porch. And they're in, they're present. But actually, then you're on a journey of taking them deeper. So you take them into the kitchen, make them a drink. You take them into the living room. You, you, you take them and sit, sit down with them. They go deeper into your house. And I think that's really what we're talking about, just allowing the presence of God to go deeper into our house to inhabit us as we are temples as we are the houses and it sounds quite a big thing doesn't it the fear of god and it's like how do we get there how do how do we go from step 1 to step fear well you just go step by step Amen. you know it isn't something that you just find yourself in it's something that chris has already said it's about pursuit it's about intention Uh, distractions are many things like just busyness we expect the presence of God to just be like a drive-through we put our order in and then we get it it's actually about abiding it's about remaining and it's just step by step by step and there's a song actually I think we've got a, a, a a slide of just a couple of the lyrics that I keep coming back to it's a it's an old Matt Redman tune uh from probably one of his I think one of his best albums face down Uh, It says, this is a time for seeing and singing. This is a time for breathing you in and breathing out your praise. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you are showing, all we have seen, commands a life of praise. No one can sing of things they've not seen. God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. The glory of you, the glory of you. Worship starts with seeing you. Worship starts with seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. And I think all that we're talking about this morning is responding to revelation. That, that as we worship, as we come close, as we allow the presence deeper to inhabit our lives, not just our meetings, <laughs> not just what we call our sung worship or our liturgical worship, but into our lives, then what we're doing is we're just opening ourselves up just to see more of God. And as we see more of God, then revelation happens. When, when Isaiah saw God, Isaiah didn't do what he did before he saw God. It was actually a result of seeing God. Yeah. When David brought the ark back to Jerusalem in the Old Testament, when the ark was like the, the dwelling place of God, the reason he danced for absolute joy, it wasn't in a vacuum. It was because he saw something. Yeah. A- and so I guess this year is a plea for us to keep our eyes open. Because as we keep our eyes open and see and worship, that brings revelation. Worship also brings wonder. That as you get to know God, you are just filled with wonder. Wonder about God's God's plan, God's purpose, God's mystery, God's love, us. How God has chosen us to be representatives, to be the image of the invisible God. If you were to ever wonder about anything... (laughs) I think that's an amazing thing to wonder about. So as we take a step closer, it's about wonder. It's about revelation. And also, as Chris has mentioned, it's about transformation. Worship changes us. Changes us on the inside. Changes us on the outside. Worship changes families, communities, regions, streets, countries, nations. And that's why the presence of God is so important. It isn't some ethereal happening that happens between 10.30 and 12.15, or encounter evenings. It's actually about living a life where you pursue and you invite God to just come closer, come deeper, this manifest presence of God, however God wants to to move. And I guess on the practical thing, my role (laughs) is to encourage and equip the worship team who are part of this. We create worship environments, environments to pursue God. And the worship team, which is the technicians, the visuals, the singers, the musicians, we are all part of this to help create these environments, to nurture them. And we don't do it all ourselves. Uh, You are very much part of the plan. We worship together. You have to know that when you respond to God, that really inspires me to respond to God. Hopefully, when we respond to God, wherever we're situated, often on a platform, hopefully that inspires you. Well, you inspire us. We go together. It's not about us persuading you into the presence. We just want to go there together. And so it's very much an interactive, interrelational thing. So I guess we as a worship team, and my job is to encourage them in their skills and their talents. And we have a great team. We really do. Full of so many different personalities. But you know, one thing that marks them out, and I travel the world working with worship teams and hearing worship teams, they have amazing servant hearts. They really do. They've got the best interests, they've got God at the center. And I think this year we are doing a lot of what we did last year just provide training, provide encouragement, provide equipping, talk about what it is to worship, talk about leadership. To encourage excellence and not necessarily perfection. Because what is perfection? (laughs) Is perfection ever reached? And actually perfection can be very subjective. But it's a pursuit of excellence. To do the best with what they've got. And that is an encouragement. It isn't something that's forced. It's come on, let's do it together. So part of my role is to do that. uh, To provide that training, to provide those tips, that understanding... Uh, to encourage them in their personal pursuit of God as well. So I guess it's to train up a team to provide and nurture and steward our times together, to pursue the presence of God, not just through sung worship, but through prayer, through liturgy, through lots of other ways, creatively. And it's to train up a team that is ready for action. And not just our action here, but together we pursue the presence of God. And it takes time. And it's a journey. And it's step by step by step. Amen. Amen.
1: So before I hand back over to some of our worship team, just to close us out. On this morning's meetings, as we finish in worship, I just want to encourage you that one of the things that we have got in place as a church every Sunday evening at six o'clock on Clarence Road—not on Clarence Road, but at our building on Clarence Road—is what we call an encounter meeting. And it's called encounter because the whole purpose of it is exactly what we've been talking about this morning. It's an unhurried space. You see, we're, we're so restricted by time, and this building because we don't have our own building yet. We have to be out, we have to clear the chairs, all that sort of stuff. But on a Sunday night, we can have an unhurried space to really, really pursue the presence of God. And some of those meetings, we have just encountered the presence of God in amazing ways. And I just want to extend an invitation to every one of you to join us. Every Sunday evening, except for when they're not on. But we'll make it very clear. So next Sunday, there's not one because of the Unity service, but pretty much every Sunday, 6 o'clock, so tonight, Clarence Row. Let's encounter God together. Let's encounter God as we worship. Let's encounter him in our own private worship times at home. Let's encourage one another to do that in our small groups, in our pastorals. And let's be a church which honours the presence, that actively pursues the presence and welcomes him. And as we draw to a close, let's do just that. Let's stand. So Father, we want to say to you that we honour you. We love you. And in the few minutes that we've got left, we want to actively pursue your presence. And our request, Lord, is that you would move in power in this place. You draw us to yourself like never before, not just today, but every single day during this year. That we might be transformed to become more and more like you. That our lives might reflect your glory. And that, Lord, everyone would look at us and see Jesus.